John chapter 12 is where we'll be today. Last couple of weeks, we've looked at the story of Lazarus from John chapter 11. We saw three weeks ago the intentional delay uh, of Jesus not coming to heal Lazarus when word is first sent about his sickness. And so we said that God's love is not always demonstrated in ways we would prefer, but we can still trust that his actions, even when delayed, will always lead to the best outcomes of our faith. And so we saw that because he loved Mary and Martha and Lazarus, he didn't come and heal Lazarus, that instead he had uh, something bigger uh, planned for them, and that was for their faith to grow through that resurrection of Lazarus. And then we saw some of the grieving that took place in losing Lazarus, and we said in order to grieve with hope, our emotions must be informed by a belief that God always remains in control, always acts in good, in good ways, and is intentionally moving creation to a climactic conclusion that will eradicate death with eternal life. And so we saw the conversation between uh, Jesus and Martha and how Martha uh, admits that she wanted Jesus to come and heal Lazarus, kind of expresses disappointment that he did not, but still still yields to the fact that you can do whatever you want to, Jesus. And so there's a, an admittance that Jesus may have something better in store for them. And then last week we saw in the midst of a funeral, in the midst of grieving, that it turns to a state of partying because of the resurrection, that in times of grief, we must strive to believe in the promises of God, lean on stronger believers when we are struggling to, realizing that while God's glory will always be accomplished, we might miss seeing it due to our lack of belief. And this is where Jesus challenged Martha um, to be obedient when he tells her to remove the stone, to uh, give access to Lazarus, even though that didn't make sense to her because she was worried about the smell, she was worried about the embarrassment of him being dead for four days. Instead, she's told to act obediently uh, and to not miss what God's about to do, that his glory is about to be put on display and if she's not careful, she's going to miss it. It's still going to happen, but her reaction, her mindset will shape whether or not she sees it or not, right? And so uh, we talked about Jesus praying that prayer of thanksgiving to God even before the resurrection. And we talked about how he did that so that people that were around him could hear that prayer and be encouraged in their own faith about that prayer. And then we see Jesus showing his victory over death, um, by bringing uh, Lazarus back from the dead. And then we even see the, uh, the conversation between Caiaphas and the other Pharisees um, and how there's, their perspective is, let's kill Jesus so that we avoid the wrath of Rome, right? And so we talked about the irony that ultimately by killing Jesus, we escape God's wrath, right? They were concerned about Rome's wrath. What ultimately happens through the death of Jesus is that we can escape God's wrath, Okay. Um, from an application standpoint last week, I challenged you to look for opportunities to pray with and for somebody this week. So this past week, I wanted you to look for opportunities to pray with somebody in a way that your prayer could be an encouragement to them, that they may be struggling to believe and that by listening to you pray for them, it may offer some level of encouragement. I also challenged you to look for ways for God's glory to be put on display, Right? to where we can give credit to him uh, for certain things that are taking place in our life. I'd love to get some feedback before we jump into John chapter 12, if that happened for anybody this week. Did anybody have the chance to pray with somebody this week um, that's maybe going through something and you were able to offer 
hope and encouragement by being able to pray with them. And is there any specific ways that you saw God moving this week in maybe ways that you hadn't anticipated? Any feedback on either one of those? I'm praying with my cousin. She's going through uh, some issues with her foot, and physical therapy's been really painful. So we prayed yesterday, at, um, actually at her son's birthday party. She's already a believer, and she's already been praying, but we haven't. our family hasn't crossed that line always to pray with each other. So that was meaningful to do that with. Um, and I've been praying about Jordan, how he's been gone, my cousin. Well, he's just been kind of been on his own down in Florida. He's kind of been being homeless and enjoying, I don't know what he's doing, but anyway, now he's uh, decided he's called, he called my aunt and said he wants to come home and just kind of try to get a job up here. And Anyway, so she sent out this group text to the family just saying, hey, pray for this, pray for that. You know, she she thinks it's going to be the same old cycle. So I, just, I was able to call her and just tell her, you know, God's still in control here. You know, we can't always understand what he's doing, but um, our, our job is to love Jordan anyways and, and maybe and just to pray for God to help heal his mind. And it, it was really neat just to, just to able to help refresh her mind that, that this is really confusing to her, but um, God's doing something here, and we're to still seek him even in the midst of this confusion. You could just tell it was, it was encouragement to her to, to just see, you know, just to remind her that, you know, look look to Jesus, not not just your circumstances here. Because mm-hmm. um, I think she gets really focused in on, like, trying to help him and lose the sight of, like, what God's doing. She can't really see that he's even doing anything. She's just yeah. tired of the situation. That was good. Okay. necessarily have the um, opportunity to pray with somebody but sometimes I'm at work people's names float into my head and I think why am I thinking about that person it's not somebody that I would normally think about and this week it was one of our young people and I thought why am I thinking about that person I have no idea why I mean I barely know this individual and I thought well maybe this person needs prayer and so I started praying just that whatever was going on that day and that the parents would have wisdom with whatever might be happening, or maybe nothing was happening, but that, that the person would be encouraged just to be strong in the Lord and to um, just have whatever. Um, and I probably will tell maybe their parents what happened. But um, but it was just a blessing to me to think that God had put that person on my heart. Just maybe nothing was going on or maybe something but it's just one of those things that you stop right there and what you're doing and focus on that individual and lift them up in prayer which is really kind of neat to see that happen I had a chance to, to pray with a lady this week she found out she'd been diagnosed with cancer and was expressing a lot of faith but a lot of fear uh, in the midst of that and I was even reminded of my own sermon as we were talking, and I was like, oh, here's my chance to pray with somebody for this week, and um, had the pr- chance to pray with her um, as well. So I encourage you to, to keep thinking in that mindset of, of ways that we can encourage others by praying with them, that sometimes their faith has been shaken, and, and they need some type of um, uh, word of encouragement that maybe we don't have the right words to say human to human, right? But we can 
intercede for them on, on, on behalf uh, of what they're going through and, and through praying with them, for them, uh, can be an, an extension of encouragement to them as well as we um, maybe reflect the faith that we have in God that maybe they're questioning right now um, and to help reinforce their faith. So encourage you to continue looking for opportunities for that. All right, so John chapter 12, we come to um, a passage where... Um, a passage that's familiar to us in regards to this being a, a story that we've probably heard many times. And so I'm going to read it for us um, to set the context for what we're going to be looking at today. In John chapter 12, verse 1, it says, Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume, but Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, who he was about to betray him, said, why was, that oint- why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief, and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death, to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Our summary sentence for today, while the extreme worth of Jesus cannot be truly measured, it can be demonstrated by the ways we serve and give, which will ultimately reflect the change he brings to our hearts about what is most valuable in this life. While the extreme worth of Jesus cannot be truly measured, it can be demonstrated by the ways we serve and give, which will ultimately reflect the change he brings to our hearts about what is most valuable in this life. For our kids, how we use our time and money will show what we care about most in this life. As you're writing notes for those that want to, this scene that we're seeing here is ultimately a celebration of what Jesus has done in the life of Lazarus, right? Like this is the, the thank you dinner to Jesus for coming and healing Lazarus, right? It takes place right after the scene with Lazarus being healed. It does have a time gap in between where Jesus did vacate that area. Uh, he went and dwelt with his disciples, kind of separated himself from the hostility of those that want to kill him. But he comes back to Bethany now, probably his first visit back since the resurrection of Lazarus. And it's here that Mary, Martha, and others decide to throw this dinner for him as a sign of appreciation, as a, uh, a thank you to him for what he's done in bringing Lazarus back from the dead. Um, it most likely takes place in Simon the ex-leper's house, who was also celebrating his own rescue from death, right? So we, we read about similar accounts in Matthew chapter 26, Mark chapter 14, and Luke chapter 7. I think when you read Matthew 26 and Mark 14, you see enough similarities to, to give confidence that this is probably the same situation or the same story taking place in those other two gospel accounts, right? I think Luke has enough, uh, enough differences. Uh, the context, the purpose seems to be unique to that setting, different than what we see in the Gospel of John. So 
my personal preference would be, or my personal opinion would be to say that Matthew, Mark, and John are all descriptions of the same account with Luke being a, a different scenario, a different story, right? So if that's the case, we're told in the other two accounts, Matthew and Mark, that the, the story takes place in Simon's house and that Mary and Martha and Lazarus are there serving alongside, right? But just think about the conversations that are being had at the dinner table. You've got one man who was a leper, who was on his way to death, right? And has obviously been saved and fixed and healed because he wouldn't be allowed to be there if he still was a leper, right? So he's probably better known as the ex-leper versus the current leper, right? And then obviously you've got the guest, Lazarus, who is there probably talking about what it's like to be dead for four days and then to come back from death, right? So probably some crazy conversations happening over the dinner table here. Um, The event takes place sometime during the last week of Jesus's life. Um, So we've been in John for 11 chapters now. That encompasses about three years worth of ministry. And now the remaining study in John is all going to take place in the last week of Jesus's life, right? So everything that we talk about from here on out happens in the matter of six to seven days, okay? This particularly happening in that last week says that he comes to Bethany about six days before Passover. We're not told exactly uh, when the the meal takes place. It could have taken place uh, on that sixth day, maybe uh, a couple days after that. It's likely that it took place on the final Sabbath before Jesus dies. Um, But he's here, he's in Bethany. He's anticipating his crucifixion, anticipating his own resurrection Mary's act here of washing his feet foreshadows what's going to happen with Jesus washing the disciples' feet, right? So we talk about the act of humility, the act of service that Jesus demonstrates to his disciples. We see Mary uh, and her act here foreshadowing that, that she demonstrates a desire to serve Jesus. When, when none of the disciples do this, right, she demonstrates that humility. She demonstrates that act of service, something that Jesus will replicate with his own disciples later, Lazarus uh, never says a word. Like, we don't have anything recorded about him verbalizing anything, but we do have in this passage an indicator that he was an unbelievable witness for the gospel, if for no other reason because of what Jesus had done to him, right? You see here at the end of this passage that uh, large amounts of people are coming to see him, to hear about his resurrection, and many of those probably not everybody, probably not this entire large crowd that comes to hear about the resurrection, but many were going away and believing in Jesus on account of him is what it says. And so I put in my notes just as an introductory piece, sometimes the best witnesses for Jesus are those that have had great things done to them rather than those who have done great things for him. Right? Sometimes we may think that we can't possibly be a good witness because maybe we don't have anything that we've yet done for Christ or accomplished for Christ. Lazarus didn't do anything. Right? He died, and Jesus brought him back from the dead. And he doesn't have some great speech about it. He doesn't have some great testimony that he is necessarily sharing. It's the simple fact that Jesus raised him from the dead that many people are now coming to believe in Jesus. So sometimes the best witnesses are those who can simply talk about what Jesus has done to them more so than what they are doing for Jesus. And Lazarus certainly fits that bill here. All right, so we are looking at both what extreme love looks like for Jesus and extreme hatred for Jesus in this passage, because we have both, 
right? We have Mary who is willing to demonstrate uh, great love, great appreciation, great thanksgiving for Jesus for what he's done in healing her brother. But then we also see extreme hatred, both in the form of Judas and his reaction, and then also uh, the Pharisees and their desire to kill not only Jesus now, but also to re-kill Lazarus as well, all right? I was torn as to how I wanted to approach this passage um, and was and was really even torn even into late last night and woke up in the middle of the night and um, God really began to continue to stir in me how to present this. And um, it really became clear that I really want us to see it in response to how individuals value Jesus in this passage, that, that Mary shows a certain level of value, Judas shows a certain level of value for Jesus as well. And so we're going to kind of see it from a perspective of what believers look like in this passage, how they respond to Jesus, what fakers or pretenders look like in their regards to valuing Jesus, because that's what Judas is, right? He's a, he's a pretender. He's a faker. He looks to be following Jesus, but when we search a little bit more in depth, we realize he's not following Jesus, right? And then we'll see what haters look like. These are individuals who aren't trying to pretend to love Jesus. They are uh, actively against him, right? So we'll see it from all three of these perspectives. So number one, believers demonstrate faith with service and sacrifice. Believers demonstrate faith with service and sacrifice. For our kids, people who truly love Jesus will serve and give for him. People who truly love Jesus will serve and give for him. There's a couple of believers in this passage that are very quick to demonstrate their faith through their attitude of service and generosity towards Jesus. The first that we see in this passage is not Mary, but Martha. It says that Jesus comes to Bethany six days before the Passover. This is where Lazarus was. This is where he had raised him from the dead. Verse two, so they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. All right, number one here I want you to see is to be ready to serve like Martha with the gifts and passions you possess. Be ready to serve like Martha with the gifts and passions you possess, right? Martha's the the sister that kind of gets some of the negative publicity, right? Because there's a separate account earlier in the Gospels where um, this is kind of playing out in a similar way, right? Where Martha's serving in the house and Mary's at the feet of Jesus and Martha comes into the room to criticize it, right? Says, hey, Jesus, I'm in here working my tail off. Why don't you get Mary in here too? Like, what's she doing? Why does she get the day off? She needs to be in here helping, right? And that's where Jesus kind of helps her to see priorities and helps her to see uh, criticism, right? And talks about the value of being at his feet, right? But I don't think we need to impose that upon this picture here as though Martha didn't learn her lesson and is serving and cooking and and preparing the meal, and Mary's right there at the feet of Jesus again. I don't think we need to read this and say, man, Martha didn't learn her lesson. Where is she at, right? Somebody has to cook and clean and prepare, right? And Martha's doing that, and that's obviously something that she is prone to do. It's something that she recognizes. It must be something that she's good at, sensitive towards, and she is maximizing. She's maximizing her passions here. She's maximizing her gifts here, 
and she is taking care of this, this entourage of people who have come to celebrate Jesus and the resurrection of Lazarus. It says that they gave a dinner. Martha is serving in that capacity. She shows her love and sacrifice by working to prepare this meal, right? So we're going to talk about Mary and the extravagant love that she so, shows towards Jesus, but we don't want to minimize what Martha's doing in this story too, that she too is showing great love and appreciation to Jesus through her serving, right? She's using her gifts. She's using her passions, things that she enjoys doing, things that, things that she's good at. She's using them to serve Jesus. Now, why, why do I think that's valuable? Because we're going to see the value of what Mary sacrifices, right? I think it's, it, it should be seen by us as a valuable act of service, if for no other reason, because it's what Jesus says about himself and what he plans to do towards us in eternity. In Luke chapter 12, verse 37, it says, Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service, have them recline at table, and he will come and serve them. The, the, the picture that Jesus is giving in this chapter in Luke is that he will be playing the role of Martha at a dinner table. That he's going to be the one serving us, right? Serving us, similar to how Martha's serving at this dinner table. So Martha certainly has, has understood the heart of Jesus and what it looks like to be humble and to serve and to care for others. And she's living that out here in John chapter 12, right? She is showing her faith. She's showing her faith through this act of service towards Jesus and the other guests. She served. Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. She's doing the work that Jesus ultimately promises to do for us. But number two, more attention is giving to Mary here, so we'll give a little bit more attention to her as well in our discussion. Number two, be ready to give like Mary with the resources and finances you possess. All right, so Martha is using kind of the innate qualities, the, the giftings, the passions that Jesus has given to her. Right, things that she enjoys doing, things that she's good at doing, and she's using those for his glory. She's using those to serve others. Mary, Mary is going to give of the financial piece, right? She's going to take something of value that she possesses, and she's going to give it to Jesus, right? It says, Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus, wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. You'd probably agree that the most meaningful gifts are almost always personal and sacrificial, right? When you think back on the gifts that, that mean the most to you, things that people have given to you in the past, the ones that probably stand out the most are ones that had some type of personal touch to them, right? Like some type of gift that says this person knows you, right? It may not be a gift you even had to ask for. It's just that due to the relationship you have with this individual, they know you and there's a personal element, right? And then oftentimes too, the sacrifice that it took to give you 
uh, demonstrates the type of love that this person wants to show to you, right? That there's some type of, it may not be even financial cost. It could be the, the time and effort that it took to get it or to build it or to put it together. But oftentimes the things that are most meaningful to us, that the gifts that resonate most with us are the ones that are personal and sacrificial. And that's certainly true here of Mary, right? There's a personal aspect to this because it seems like she's putting together the dots of maybe even Jesus's own looming death. Because the conversation that ensues afterwards is that Jesus talks about the beauty of what's been done here. He references that in the other two gospels. Um, But he connects it with the fact that, hey, don't criticize her. She recognizes my coming burial, right? So there's a personal aspect to Mary and the gift that she gives because it seems like she's demonstrating a, an awareness of, hey, I know what you've been saying, um, and I know this seems to be where we're, where we're headed, right? So she's got that personal piece to the gift, but then also the sacrificial piece, right? That this gift was costly to her, costly to her, and Judas lets us know about that, right? Judas lets us know exactly how costly this perfume was. Her love is seen in the specific gift that she chooses to give to Jesus. Now, we don't have any information about this, but I put in my notes, I think it's interesting that this ointment is typical of burials and it was not used on Lazarus. Think about that. Like, this is Lazarus's sister, right, who loves Lazarus dearly, her heart's been ripped out of her in his death, right? Like she's, she's weeping before Jesus. Jesus, if you had been here, this would not have happened, right? But the, the, the valuable ointment wasn't used on him, or at least it was used sparingly to where there was enough left over, right? I find it interesting that Lazarus, who she would have loved greatly, she doesn't choose to use the ointment on him, right? She's still in possession of it. I don't know if it's her own personal ointment that's to be used on herself someday when she dies. I don't know what this was being held for. I don't know why it was being kept. But she sees an opportunity to use it and believes it's the best use of it, right? The best use of it would not have been using it on her brother in his burial. Instead, she chooses to use it on a living individual to where the purpose of it even won't be fully realized. It's not going to preserve Jesus' body. He's still got at least a week left to live, right? This perfume is going to be used up, right? But there's, a, there's an indicator here probably of the level of love she has for Jesus. She loves him more than her brother. She loves him as dearly as much as she loves Lazarus, right? As precious as he is to her, Jesus is better. Jesus is more important, right? He's the one who gets the ointment, not her brother, right? Um, the ointment would have fit probably in the size of a, something the size of a soda can. And as Judas tells us, it was valued at a year's salary. When a person is willing to sacrifice for your benefit, it shows the depth of love they have for you, right? This is for Jesus's benefit. Mary doesn't get anything out of this, Right? She's taking a year's worth of salary for that time. And she is pouring it out on his feet. And it's gone in a moment. Right? 
year's salary gone in a moment, right? But what it demonstrates to Jesus is the level of love that she has for him. She's misunderstood and criticized greatly in this setting, right? We, we hear in John that Judas is the one that, that initiates this, but lest we think the disciples are over there rebuking Judas, we learn from Matthew and from Mark that they kind of jump in on the conversation. They're like, yeah, like what are we doing here, right? Like this could have been sold and used in a much better way for the poor. So she is misunderstood and she's criticized, which I'm going to tell you are common responses towards anyone who abandons himself to the Lord, right? Anytime you give yourself to the Lord in an extreme way, in a radical way, get ready for the criticism and the misunderstandings to come. It doesn't make sense to a world that is ingrained in the things of this culture for you to make sacrifices, significant sacrifices for Jesus. It just doesn't make sense, right? So you are going to open yourself up to criticism and to being misunderstood when you try to live this way. It tells us that even the best acts will attract the harshest critics, But it's also a good reminder to us that we may not even fully realize the reaching effects of our gifts. Again, we learn from the other two Gospels, Jesus says, this story will be remembered forever, right? Like your act right here of pouring out this ointment is not going to be lost. This is a story that will be retold for generation after generation, right? Right alongside the Gospel is this story, We don't always realize the the far-reaching effects that our gifts can have, and this certainly is the case. I don't think Mary had any intentions or any thoughts that 2,000-plus years later, a group of people would gather in Sonoy, Georgia, and be talking about her ointment that she poured out on Jesus, right? That was the farthest thing from her mind. But I can tell you, if if, if Jesus tarries for another 2,000 years, and there's 4,000 years between these stories, right, there's going to be another group of people gathering somewhere that are talking about Mary and her ointment 2,000 years from today. Because Jesus says, hey, this is going to go right along with the gospel. This is going to be proclaimed all the time, over and over and over and over again, right? Proverbs chapter 10, a couple of Old Testament passages that echo who Mary is to us. Proverbs chapter 10, verse 7. The memory of the righteous is a blessing, but the name of the wicked will rot, right? We think about Mary, raise their hands. Everybody in here has met somebody named Mary probably, right? right? It's a name that is associated with righteousness. It is a name that gets reused and reused generation after generation, right? Probably not a lot of us in here that know somebody named Judas, right? Because it is associated with wickedness and betrayal, right? It's a name that rots, It's a name that maybe previously was famous, previously common, but once people started to realize who the the most recent Judas was, nobody wanted to go with that name anymore, right? Mary's a name that still remains popular today, right? Why? Because it's associated with righteousness, just like what Proverbs talks about. In Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 1, a good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. A good name is better than precious ointment. I mean, it's really the only ointment that we're talking about today, right? Um, Mary's ointment, but we're talking about her and the sacrifice of her ointment, right? 
We wouldn't remember her ointment or her name as much had she kept it for herself, had she used it on Lazarus, had she used it on herself for her own burial, right? It's the fact that she gave it, right? Good name is better than precious ointment. Mary certainly understood that. For Mary, possessions were a way to bless Jesus. If you're taking notes, you need to write that down. You're going to want to remember that. For Mary, possessions were a way to bless Jesus. They weren't something to hoard. They weren't something to protect. They weren't something to overvalue. Right? They were a way to bless Jesus. Believers demonstrate their faith with service and with sacrifice. Martha served with her gifts and passions. Mary served with her resources. She gave her resources. She gave what was financially important to her. She gave that away as a gift to Jesus. Number two, fakers recognize true value. Sorry, fakers don't do this. They need to do this, right? They need to recognize true value over actual cost. tried to write this in such a way in case you identify with yourself as a faker this morning. You need to recognize true value over actual cost. For our kids, people who only pretend to love Jesus care more about themselves than others. So believers, you need to demonstrate faith with service and sacrifice. If you identify yourself with the faking group, you need to recognize true value over actual cost. Right? We see Judas here in verse 4. Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Right? Number one, we need to refuse to follow Jesus for the hope of temporary gain. We need to refuse to follow Jesus for the hope of temporary gain. Right? We don't get into the Christianity business of following Jesus in hopes of gaining this world because we're going to be disappointed if that's the case. We're not going to gain this world because Jesus promises the opposite. Right? So we may experience financial gain and be a Christian, right? but it's not something that's promised to God's people across the board. And if that's our motivation for following Jesus, then we fall into the category of being a faker like Judas. We're more concerned about ourselves than we are about others. Mary's sacrifice shows the value that she placed on Jesus. She recognized his surpassing worth and she brings her best and gives it all to him. This is her response of thanksgiving to him for raising her brother from the dead and you can't put a value on that. Right? So Judas is very quick to, 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 to criticize her because he's like, why would you do this? Right? You could have given this away to the poor. Whereas I think if, if the conversation was allowed to carry on, I think Mary's response would have been, do you know what he did for me? Like, he brought my brother back from the dead. Like, that's worth 10 to 20 to 50 years' salaries. Right? I mean, just think about this. If somebody said to you, after you lost a loved one, hey, we can bring him back from the dead for a cost. 
I mean, what if the cost was a year's salary? I think all of us would say, worth it, right? Like, yes, like, I may have to go get a loan, I may have to go borrow money, but if, if for a year's worth of my salary, you can bring back my loved one from the dead, I'll pay that as many times as I can, right? So I think for Mary, it was like, look, this is the only way I know to say thank you to Jesus for bringing my brother back from the dead. All of a sudden, what, what did have value to her, all of a sudden doesn't carry the same preciousness to her. Right, like I don't need to hang on to this. I'm giving this to you because you've given something back to me. Right? So she is showing an attitude of thanksgiving in the way that she gives this ointment to Jesus to, to, to wash his feet. Jesus underst- or Judas understood the price of everything, but the value of nothing. He masked his selfishness and his self-centeredness by claiming to love the poor. His service was beneficial rather than sacrificial. He only wants to give if it benefits him. He only wants to follow Jesus for what he can get from him. We said for Mary, possessions were a way to bless Jesus. For Judas, possessions were better than Jesus. Possessions were better than than Jesus. So, so what's happening here? Well, he's saying, and we should, have, we should have sold this. You should have given me the money that we sold it for. Then I would take some off the top, and then I would give the rest to the poor, right? So he's masking his selfishness, masking his self-centeredness in the name of ministry, right? In the name of ministry, let's go do this, but he knows he benefits from it. He's going to make sure that he does, right? And we have to be very careful ourselves that we don't mask self-centeredness in the form of ministry, right? That we're not motivated to follow Jesus, to serve for Jesus because of some temporary financial benefit that may come our way, right? Judas wants to go help the poor, not to help the poor, to help himself, right? Now, you read Matthew, you read Mark. Does anybody see what happens after the disciples slash Judas are rebuked for this perspective? What's the next immediate thing that happens in Matthew and Mark? Anybody see that? Judas goes and has a bargaining conversation with the Pharisees about what, what he can sell Jesus for, right? Like, that's the immediate reaction to Judas is, okay, So we just wasted a year's worth of salary that could have been sold to give to the poor. And I may have taken 10%, 20%, whatever I'm used to taking off the top because I'm handling the money bags for our ministry. He's frustrated at the loss that he incurs from this sacrifice. And so his immediate response is, I need to fix this. I I feel like I just lost out on a financial opportunity. I'm going to go create another one. Right? So he goes and talks with the Pharisees and says, what will you give me for Jesus? What will you give me for Jesus? Now, what do we, you, it's already been said. What do we know that he sells Jesus for? 30 pieces of silver. Right? So, so get this. We're saying that fakers need to recognize true value over actual cost. Man, Judas is great at knowing the value of things from the cost standpoint. Because right? he says, hey, 
that, that ointment right there, I can size that up, right? It's like in the size of a soda can. I know where that thing came from, probably got imported from India. That's a year's salary right there, right? Like that ointment is precious. We could sell it for a year's salary. You know what he sells Jesus for? Four months worth of salary, right? He goes and says, you know what? The ointment is worth three times as much as my Savior. He says, I'll give you Jesus for four months' salary. Sorry, I wished I had the ointment because that would have been worth a year's salary. All I got is Jesus, though. Give me four months' salary for him, right? The guy has completely lost sight of what is valuable, right? He's completely consumed by his own self-centeredness, his own need to take care of his financial desires that he's willing to sacrifice in the wrong way. Right? He's willing to sacrifice what is most precious for very little, very little gain. Right? He's completely consumed by his self-centeredness. He's a faker. He's a faker. He's following Jesus for hopes of temporary financial gain. We need to refuse to follow Jesus for those type of purposes. Number two, refuse to reject Jesus when expectations are unmet. And it's so common for people to want to walk away from Jesus because he doesn't meet their expectations, right? Mary and Martha were, were grappling with that. If you had shown up, Jesus, Lazarus wouldn't be dead, right? Our expectation was you were going to heal him and you didn't, but they don't wander from the faith, right? Martha says, but you can do what you want to, right? We're going to keep following you because you're Jesus, and you can do what you want to. What's Judas do? Judas says, I want financial gain from this arrangement, and you keep talking about dying. You keep talking about going away. You keep talking about our ministry crumbling. I'm not okay with that. Like, I didn't sign up for this three years ago with the expectation that the kingdom wasn't going to come, right? So Judas has probably got these, these illusions of grandeur, like when um, after the feeding of the 5,000, where everybody's like, hey, let's make him king now. And Jesus has to move his disciples out of that so they don't fall prey to thinking, hey, a kingdom now would be better. Right? So Judas is probably thinking, King Jesus, I'm the money bag guy, right? Like, I'm going to have access to all kinds of finances. But this, this, this new perspective in Jesus' ministry, man, he won't stop talking about dying. He won't stop talking about, about where we're headed. His expectations aren't being met. Right? And so at that point, it's, I'm ready to get out. I'm ready to cash in, and I'll, and I'll give you Jesus for whatever I can get for him because this is unmet expectations for me, right? We have to be very careful that when Jesus doesn't meet our expectations, one, we have to be careful to not set expectations, right? But when we have those expectations, we have to be really careful that we don't reject Jesus when he doesn't meet those expectations. Judas is dissatisfied with how following Jesus was paying off for him, he departs after this encounter, and he begins that plot to betray him. Believers, demonstrate your faith with service and sacrifice. If you're a faker this morning, recognize true value over actual cost. The true value in the story is Jesus, and he doesn't necessarily come with financial gain. He doesn't necessarily make our temporal life better from what this world would say is better but the value of Jesus cannot be measured. Mary shows that. She gives the absolute best thing that she has, but even that doesn't truly reflect 
his value. Number three, haters. Haters need to stop rejecting Jesus before it's too late. For our kids, people who reject Jesus do so because they do not want to obey him. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Number one, we need to celebrate rather than criticize the change that Jesus brings. We need to celebrate rather than criticize the change that Jesus brings. His increase will naturally lead to our decrease. That's what John the Baptist said, right? Remember when his followers were concerned that Jesus and his ministry was getting more recognition than theirs, right? John says, well, we have to decrease. He has to increase, right? Jesus will increase. We have to then decrease, and we have to be okay with that, right? They're mad because Jesus is bringing change, and it's not resulting in their own promotions. It's not resulting in their own gain, right? It's actually resulting in a decrease for them, right? They're losing power. They're losing authority, and they don't want to see that go. And so they're criticizing Jesus and what he's doing because it's not benefiting them. It's not paying off for them. Number two, we need to embrace his authority and be willing to relinquish our own. Their rejection of him is not based on an unbelief of him or a confusion about him, but instead on a rebellion towards him, right? Like they're not, they're not confused about who Jesus is. They don't need to have another conversation about who Jesus is. They're not lacking evidence about who Jesus is, right? They've got the resurrection of Lazarus staring at them. It's their biggest concern right now. How do we get rid of it? Right, they're wanting to kill the threat. They can't explain it. They can't disprove it. So they want to kill it, right? They don't want to have any more conversations about Jesus, right? So it's not an individual here who uh, is still confused about Jesus and needs to have uh, some type of sit-down conversation about him, right? What they're trying to do is to prevent any future conversations from happening. They don't, they don't want to kill the threat. They want to get rid of him. The irony here is they're trying to kill Lazarus, who's already been raised from the dead, right? Like, as if to say that Jesus won't do it again if they kill Lazarus, right? Like, hey, we got to kill the guy who's back from the dead. The, probably the indicator is you can't kill him, right? As long as Jesus wants him alive, he's going to be alive, right? Um, they're losing their authority. It's not benefiting them, and so they want no part of Jesus. So you see three different types of people here, right? You see believers, the Marys, the Marthas, who are showing their faith by the way they serve and by the way they give, right? And, and that's the group we need to find ourselves in, the group that's willing to serve and the, will, the group that's willing to give, right, of the things that God has given to us to, to, to serve Jesus. You've got the fakers, the group who, who has been around the culture for a long period of time, maybe has grown up in church, right? Has, has been around Christianity for a while, 
but never really surrendered to it, right? They're kind of they're in it because they think that there's some type of gain to come from it, that maybe if I, maybe if I do this, that it, it'll, it'll pay off for me. Maybe it's good to have some of Jesus in my life. Maybe that will benefit me. That's where Judas was. He was, he was using Jesus in hopes of bettering his own life. He didn't see the true value. He was only measuring things by actual cost. And you got the group of haters who are just actively against Jesus because they know what it means to follow him and they want no part of that, right? They don't want to surrender themselves to his authority. They want to keep that authority. They want to be the the dictators of what their life looks like. They want to define what life looks like. They want to define right and wrong for their life. They need to stop rejecting Jesus before it's too late. They're plotting to kill Jesus. They fail to repent, even though the opportunity is extended for them. Application thought for us. In closing, what does showing extravagant love for Jesus look like today? How do we show the value that we place on him today? Right now, I don't, I don't necessarily want to answer that question for you this morning. I want, I want to leave you with that question as we get ready to depart today. Because um, I think that's going to look different for each one of us. Now, I want to tie it in with what Jesus says about the poor. Because the disadvantage for us is that we don't have physical Jesus in our presence to have over to serve a meal to. We can't go buy Jesus um, a gift with you know, the maximum amount of money that we have. Um, but we do have the poor, right? Um, we have this book that we read to AJ and Abram and Mally called um, Ronnie's Gift. Remember that book? Right? So this book's written by Francis Chan, right? It's one of Francis Chan's books. Um, in that book, there's a boy, little boy, who wants to give his most prized possession to Jesus, right? And his most prized possession for him is his baseball glove, right? And so he's, he's trying throughout the story to figure out how to give his glove to Jesus, right? And so he tries to strap it to a balloon. He wants to, he wants to mail it to Jesus. Like he, he's trying to figure out how do I get my, my glove to heaven, right? Um, and and what, what you find out throughout the story is that he ends up taking care of people around him, right? He ends up buying a hot dog for this, this poor guy who, who's hungry. He ends up... Um, playing with, with one of the boys next door who doesn't really have a lot of friends, ends up giving his glove to the little boy next door. And at the end of the story, he ends up praying, and he's like, Jesus, I hope you're, I hope you're, I hope you're enjoying that, right? Because he's found a way to give without being able to give to physical Jesus, right? He, he realizes that I've got individuals around me that need me to be involved in their life, right? In Hebrews chapter 13, verse 16. It says, do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Right? I think what Jesus is saying with that comment about the poor is that when I'm not here, 
that's when you will do this towards the poor, to do it as unto me, right? We know that Jesus talks about the fact that when he comes back, we are going to be commended for the people that we fed, for the people that we visited in prison, right? The people that, that aren't him, but in a sense are him, right? Because he says basically that when we do it to the least of these, we're doing it unto him. Hebrews says this is a, an honoring sacrifice. It's pleasing to God when we do good and when we share what we have with others. We'll always have the poor with us, Jesus says. And I think there's some encouragement in that, some sustaining encouragement in that, meaning that our job's not to solve the world's problem with poverty. I think Jesus is saying that we can't, that if he tarries for another 2,000 years, there will still be poverty 2,000 years from now. We're not going to solve the poverty problem around the world. We're always going to have the poor with us, which helps us, sustains us, in that we don't grow discouraged when we are helping but not ultimately eradicating it, right? The poor is always with us. But there's also this implication that there's always needs around us as well. So we can't solve all the problems around us. So stay encouraged that you're not supposed to fix everybody's problem, but stay alert because there's always needs around you. There's always going to be needs around you that you can help contribute towards. Right? And so it's our job, I think, to then act as a Martha, act as a Mary. We find ways around us to serve with our passions and giftings, right? things that, that we are good at, and that we also find ways to give financially as well to things around us that need it. It's how we live out Martha and Mary in a day and age where we can't have Jesus over. Right? It'd be awesome if we could have him over today and cook a dinner, cook a dinner for him and break out our best possessions and cast them at his feet. We don't get to do that today. But we do have the poor with us. And Hebrews says that when we share and when we do good, it's a pleasing sacrifice to God. So the thought to leave you with is, how does that look for you in your life? How do you use particular gifts and passions that, that God has given to you? How do you use your particular financial situation Maybe it's, maybe it's money, maybe it's possessions. How do you use those to give to those around you as well? Right? I want you to leave thinking about how that looks for you individually as an application point. Family worship questions for this week. What are some of the most valuable things we possess as a family and how can we use them to show love for Jesus? Number two, what things do we care about most as a family and how can we give our money to show that? Let's pray together. Jesus, we love you and we thank you for the good that you have shown to us. God, you haven't raised our relatives from the dead. But we're thankful this morning for a far better resurrection and that's your own. We are thankful that, that you are alive and well today. You're sitting at the right hand of your Father and that the days are counting down for when you come back for us. Lord, I pray that as we wait upon you for that day, that we would be very faithful to demonstrate the love that we have for you 
that we would reflect the value that we place upon you in the ways that we interact with those around us. God, I pray that you would give us a desire, a burden, a passion to use our gifts, abilities, resources, our own financial gain to serve those around us. Help us to see that in doing so, we are doing it towards you. And God, help us to be extravagant with it. God, help us to to place far more value upon you than Judas did. God, I pray that it would be reflected in the way that we live our life. Pray that you'd challenge us and convict us where we need it regarding that. Pray that you would protect us from, um, from ever believing that following you brings about financial gain here and now. Um, God, help us not to to fall prey to that. Help us to to not love this world more than you. And if that's the case, if that's where we've been, God, I pray that you'd call us out of that state of fakeness and that you would call us to believe in you truly. God, help us to continue to submit ourselves to your authority, your leadership, even when it presses in on ways that we would want to have our lives carried out expectations that we have. God, help us not to to reject you and to, to grow dissatisfied with you, but instead, God, I pray that you would keep us embracing you. Help us to be surrounded by people that would encourage us in that. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.